Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians. And actually what we're going to try to do today is to close out our studies in 1 Thessalonians and introduce 2 Thessalonians, which we'll try to work through uh, following today. Uh, I thought what I would do this morning, since it's kind of a, an overview, a recap, a summary of our studies in 1 Thessalonians, is just try to highlight some of the uh, things that I think are important in the book. So I want to actually begin with uh, reviewing Paul's time in Thessalonica. This is during his second missionary journey. You can find it in Acts 17, the first 10 verses. And so Paul arrived in Thessalonica and he preached for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. That's all that's mentioned in terms of his his first trip there. He probably may have spent a few more weeks there, but it's only mentioned that he preached for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. As a result of his preaching, a lot of the Jews who were in the synagogue became very jealous of the Apostle Paul because some of their people were believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were attaching themselves to the Apostle Paul along with a number of the a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women of the city that were in the synagogue as well and as a result of the following and the the fruit of the preaching of the gospel these Jews became very jealous of the Apostle Paul. So they went to the local market and they found all these wicked men and they formed a mob and they were wanting to go and basically do away with the Apostle Paul. So they went to the house of a man by the name of Jason. Jason probably was a converted Jew and they thought that Paul was probably staying with there. So they basically came and they, they, with this big mob and they broke in or got into the house of Jacob and Paul was not there. So they pulled out Jason and they dragged him before the city authorities and they accused him for harboring and supporting these men who have upset the world who act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Of course, that's what Paul was preaching. Well, they couldn't lay their hands on Paul, so they dragged Jason out, and the civil authorities decided not to directly, physically punish Jason, but they required a pledge from him. We don't know exactly what that pledge was, but it was probably dangerous enough and serious enough that the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they had to leave town. So basically he was run out of town. This leaving in the midst, in the middle of the night actually will become a source of criticism for the Apostle Paul by his enemies there in the church who will try to convince the Thessalonians to disassociate with Paul Because after all, look how he abandoned you so quickly. And he fled. He really doesn't love you. He's just there to pick your pocket. He's there basically as a con artist and a religious huckster 
So don't trust his gospel. Don't trust him. And they were trying to drive a wedge between the early church there at Thessalonica and the Apostle Paul. And that's why Paul probably in 1 Thessalonians spends so much time reaffirming his love for the people. He will tell them of his fond affection for them, that he was gentle as a nursing mother who tenderly cares for his children. He incurs him as a father would who implores his own children and, uh, and also encourages them. And he tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians, his first letter to them, that he wanted to come to them more than once, but Satan thwarted his plans. He went on to say to them, you are our glory, you are our joy. And a lot of this is to counteract a lot of the negativity from his enemies that were trying to drive a wedge between the church and the Apostle Paul. I think one of the things we can learn by way of application is to expect criticism. Expect criticism that is unjust, that is based on ignorance or evil intentions. People will say things that are not true about us. They will uh, criticize us. They will uh, harshly accuse us of things that we're innocent of. And I think this just goes with the territory of being a Christian in a world that basically is hostile to God. So the Apostle Paul faced criticism, and in a certain sense, so will we. So don't be alarmed by it. If you're facing criticism at work or by unbelievers around your, your life in various uh, ways, but just try to honor Christ in the way you respond to those unjust criticisms as you seek to lay out the facts. So the Apostle Paul certainly defended his love. He didn't leave on his own desire that was on his plan. He wanted to stay there longer, but to protect the church from further persecution and abuse, it was necessary for him to live, to leave. He didn't want to. And so he tries to, I think, reassure them of his love and his concern and his fond affection for them throughout the letter. So with that is somewhat of the background. Now, so, so Paul leaves Thessalonica and he goes to Berea. He preaches there. The Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. And then he left there and he goes down to Athens. He preaches there. Not sure enough were converted to start a church. But then he ends up in Corinth. Okay, he is greatly concerned though about the church of Thessalonica. His heart is with them. He's concerned that their, their faith may waver. So previously, he sends Timothy to go back to the church of Thessalonica to check them out, to encourage them, to build their faith, to try to carry on the ministry there. So Timothy goes back to the church and he ministers to him for a while. And then he comes and meets Paul at Corinth and he gives him a report on how the church is doing. There are things to be thankful for in the church. There are some concerns as well. So in response to that report brought to him by Timothy while he's at Corinth planting a church, he writes 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians is carried to the, to the church. They read it. 
whoever carries the, the letter there stays probably a little bit of time there, gets their reaction, understands that there are more questions. So that they come back to Corinth and soon after writing 1 Thessalonians, Paul will write 2 Thessalonians while he's still at Corinth. And again, he's going to deal with issues that are not yet resolved, mainly doctrinal issues that we'll explore in just a moment. So that's basically kind of the background to Paul writing these two letters. So some of the themes that uh, I think are interesting, I want to just kind of wrap up and summarize, and then we'll do an introduction to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, One of the great uh, themes, of course, is the doctrine of election. And we read that in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians verse 4. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now what's very interesting about Paul mentioning this in 1 Thessalonians is he hadn't been there that long. And yet, teaching the doctrine of election after the gospel was made clear was on his priority list. Because he wasn't there very long, but he could write a letter and just mention election without having to defend it from all the objections and all the, well, what about this and what about that? He doesn't do that here because he had already taught them this doctrine. So he could just mention it in passing. Now, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he had never been at Rome before. And so when he lays out the doctrine of election in the book of Romans, he deals with objections. Well, it's unjust. If God is the one who chooses before the foundation of the world who He's going to save and not save, then that's not fair. It's not just for God to choose some and not choose everybody. And in the book of Romans, Paul answers that. That election is not an issue of justice or fairness. If God was totally fair, and if God was totally just, then every single one of us would be condemned to hell. Because we've all sinned. We don't want God to be just, do we? We don't want Him to be fair and and treat me as I deserve because I deserve His judgment. No, we want His grace. We want His mercy. So if you say it's not fair, it's not just for God to choose some and not choose others, that's not the issue. It's not an issue. It's not violating His justice or His fairness. It's merely that God sovereignly shows mercy to some. And God's mercy is free. He doesn't owe it to to everybody. He can give it to whomever He chooses. So it's not an issue of that. Or what about, well, then why evangelize? That comes up a lot. If God has already chosen whom He's going to say, why evangelize? Well, again, in the book of Romans, Paul deals with that objection in Romans chapter 10. And he says that God has ordained the means of saving the elect by the preaching of the gospel. So how can someone believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear if someone doesn't go and preach to them? But here in 1 Thessalonians, he doesn't deal with objections. And it's a controversial doctrine, right? The doctrine of election. But here he just mentions it in passing. Why? Because he had already taught that to them. He had already dealt with the objections. 
So he, he can just merely mention it and move on because they understood it because they had already been taught it. And this is why I think it's so interesting that we can glean from Paul's uh, methods that whenever he was planting a church, he would go into an area and he would first preach the gospel. Then after believers came to faith, and got saved, then he would begin to ground them in the, the doctrines of God's grace. And I think that's what, what certainly happened here. The doctrine of election is an important doctrine for a number of reasons because one of them is it answers the problem of our depravity that we inherited from Adam. Because of Adam's sin, we've been imputed with the sin nature and also the, the guilt of Adam's sin itself so that by nature we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 we are enemies of God, Romans 8, hostile to the things of God. There's none who does good, not even one. There's none who seeks after God. We don't even seek after God on our own. Paul says a natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So the natural man really don't, doesn't even spiritually understand the gospel on his own. Because they're written in a way that they, they, their hearts just do not comprehend it. And Jesus Himself said in John 6 that no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. Now wait a second. If no one can come to the Lord Jesus in faith unless the Father draws them, then how? No one can come on their own. No one can come on their own. They need God's grace to draw them to Christ. That's what Jesus taught. So our wills are not free, but a slave to our own depraved heart. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest philosopher and maybe even theologian of America, said that the will of man, the natural will of man, is a bondservant to our hearts. So the will always chooses what the heart wants. So if your heart is bad, your will is bad. And so before my will will ever choose what is good and choose Jesus Christ for salvation, my heart, my bad heart first must be changed. And that's why Ezekiel talked about God promised to Israel that He would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and then they would live for the honor of the Lord. It's all by grace. And it's a work of God's electing grace. So that was something I think that the Apostle Paul emphasized. It explains why is it that some people become Christians and most do not? Why is it that you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And family members did not. Friends do not. Relatives do not. People at work do not. Why, why did you come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Was it because there's something a little better in you? A little more spiritually sensitive? A little wiser? Maybe a little smarter? A little more godly? See, there's really nothing that we can do to pat ourselves on the back. This is God's work. 
so that we give God the glory even for our, our faith. And election, the doctrine of election, really kind of explains all of that. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said that some are so afraid of, of this doctrine of election that when it comes up in the Bible, it produces more alarm in their hearts than if they met a lion in the street. And he goes on to say that I do not hesitate to say that next to the doctrine of the crucifixion and the resurrection of our blessed Lord, no doctrine had such prominence in the early church as the doctrine of the election of grace. And I think he's right. And I think that's why Paul is emphasizing it to the church at Thessalonica, just in passing, because he had already preached it to them and taught it to them during those three or four or five weeks that he was with them, that was a priority truth he wanted to pass on to them very early on once they embraced Christ as their Savior. So the doctrine of election is important because it exalts God's grace and mercy. It humbles us in our pride and it gives all the glory for our salvation to God. Paul goes on to say, and you can just see the outworking of the elect when they come to faith in Christ, that their faith is, <clears throat> is shown to be true because it perseveres in suffering. <clears throat> and this is another one of those observations and themes in, in the book that I think is very important to, to review. Notice what he says in verse 6. Those who were chosen, those whom the Word of God came in power and in the Spirit, uh, they were the ones who became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they received the Gospel in the midst of tribulation, and yet they rejoiced in it. That's the grace of God working in our hearts. In chapter 2, he said that they endured the same sufferings at the hand of their own countrymen, so again, the nature of the faith that grace gives to us is a faith that's willing to cling to Christ even in the midst of persecution and suffering. So that's one of the great testimonies of the kind of grace and faith that God gives. So the doctrine of election, I think, is prominent in this, in this letter. There's another theme, though, and this is just where Paul is exhorting the church to grow in grace <clears throat> grow in their walk with the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he exhorts them to walk worthy of their calling. In other words, let your walk match your talk. Let your life match your lips. So if you profess to be a Christian, let your life show that you're a Christian. Walk worthy of the God who calls you in the fellowship with Him. And this is one of the themes, one of the, the big themes of this first letter that he writes to them. He says in chapter 4 <clears throat> that God's will is for your sanctification. And in that context, in John chapter, I'm sorry, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at uh, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk 
and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. In other words, Paul has received this report back from Timothy, and he says, look, they are, they are walking and living their life to please God. And that's good. So he commends them for that. But he also adds, excel still more. Don't become complacent. Don't become the idea that, okay, I'm, I can just be stabilized in my walk with the Lord. No, keep excelling. And I think that's a good challenge for all of us. Oftentimes, I think it's easy for us to become complacent in our walk with Christ. That we just kind of put it on autopilot. And so we get up and we go through our routine. We read our Bible. We pray. We, do, we go to church. We do this, that, that and the other. It almost becomes just a, <clears throat> a road habit of stuff that we do. And what Paul is exhorting them is, look, you're doing well. You're pleasing God, which is good. But don't stop there. Continue to excel. Strive all the more. Bring those lusts and submission to God's grace. The areas where you're struggling in, fight with God's help and the ministry of the Word of God to, to grow through them. Don't be complacent. He goes on to say the same thing in verse 10 about the importance of them that they've been taught by God to love one another at the end of verse 9. And then in verse 10, he says, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So the second time, he exhorts them in their sanctification, excel. Don't be content just with where you are now. Want to grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. Want to have more of the, of the joy and the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of your life than what you're going through and experiencing now. Excel still more. So one of the, the themes in First Thessalonians is just to emphasize the importance of keep on growing. Don't be content with where you're at. And then he also adds to it in chapter 5 some very encouraging words. That uh, now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. And faithful is He who calls you and He also will bring it to pass. That God has promised and God is faithful to help you continue that work of sanctification. It's not just left up to you and me. That we have God's grace and God's power and His faithfulness. That He will sanctify us. He will continue the work that He has begun within us. So that's our hope. That's where we get our strength from. That's where we get our encouragement from. So that's a major theme. Another one, of course, is the coming of the Lord. And this is, it's interesting that every chapter ends with either the very last verse or the, right there in that, those last few verses with a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this is a big theme in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, the comfort, of course, is that they were concerned about their dead, uh, believing loved ones who had already passed away. Would they miss out on the glory of the second coming? And Paul reassures them that they will be resurrected first, and then we who are alive will be raptured up to meet the Lord in the air when He comes back. So he has a lot to correct, 
because they were very confused and he's comforting them that all believers will share in the glory when Christ comes back. The timing of the rapture, as I understand it, there's no reference at all in the book that this rapture occurs before a tribulation period. And as we studied that verse, verse 17 the phrase that we will meet the Lord in the air, that word meet is, uh, had become a technical term. Remember I quoted from three leading Greek lexicons and authorities, and they all said that it was a technical word to refer to citizens, for example, that would come out of a city to meet a visiting dignitary or a king. And they would meet that king, and then they would turn around and they would escort him back into the city. Now that idea, when Christ comes, can only fit with a post-trib second coming of Christ. He raptures us up into the air, and instead of then going back up into heaven for seven years, no, no, He raptures us up to meet Him in the air, and then we turn around and escort Him back to the earth. That's the second coming. So I don't think there's a pre-trib rapture. I think it's a post-trib rapture And I think that verse is very powerful to support that idea. He goes on also to speak in chapter 5 that when Christ comes, it's like a thief in the night. And everybody thinks that's any moment, imminent return of Christ. But that's not the context. Christ comes as a thief in the night for the unbelievers, for the wicked. It catches them off guard. Christ comes and, and destroys them. It catches them unaware. But not the church. The church is watching and waiting. We're looking. So it doesn't come, Christ's coming is not like a thief in the, in the night for us. Only for unbelievers. So that second coming theme is going to be carried over into 2 Thessalonians and become a very important part of that book. And then he kind of closes out the book with a couple more themes of the community within the church the mutual ministry that they should have to one another. He's emphasized in the book that we're to love one another. We're to live in peace with one another. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace within a local church is just a a tremendous blessing that we should strive for. We should have peace with one another. We should admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with all people. Don't show personal revenge when people harm you or do something evil against you, but seek what is good for everyone. So there's mutual ministry that the local church should be engaging in. That's a theme in 1 Thessalonians. He goes on to say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. So, So live high in the things of God. Rejoice always. Give thanks for everything. Pray at all times. Walk worthy of your calling is kind of the emphasis. And then he talked about the importance of corporate worship. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Examine all things. Hold fast to the good. Abstain from all evil. And as we would apply that today, it's just the focus on the centrality of Scripture. Love the Word of God. Love it, learn it, and live it. So with that kind of wrapping up 1 Thessalonians, we can now 
briefly look at Second uh, Thessalonians. I want to just make a few comments on verse 1 and 2. Paul and Silvanus, which is another name for Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now Paul has received back, he's already sent First Thessalonians, and those who took the letter now interacted with the church, and then they came back and gave another report to Paul. There's a lot of encouraging things he heard in this other report, but there's also some things that concern him. So, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he writes Second Thessalonians, and then he's going to send that back to the church to clarify some issues that they're, they're struggling with. So again, uh, who are the authors? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Same as 1 Thessalonians. Same, same author. Paul is mentioned first. He's the lead, obviously. He's the, the apostle. He's under the inspiration of the Spirit. They're writing it to the church of the Thessalonians, so it goes to the very same church. But notice how they're described here in verse 1. The Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very important to observe. Sometimes Paul writes God the Father, as he does in verse 2. See the difference? God the Father, but in verse 1 it's God our Father. What's the difference? Well, when he says God the Father, he's really referring to God as the Father of our incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. That within the Godhead you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking in reference to the Father's relationship to the Son. He's a, God the Father is a Father in terms of His relationship within the Godhead. But in verse 1, when he says, God our Father, He's our Father. And now it's God's relationship to us as His children. We've been adopted into His family. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. So that God is now their Father and our Father as well because we now belong to Him. He has rescued us out of the family of Satan and adopted us and transferred us into His own family so that now we're His children and we can call Him our Father. And those are the incredible words that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. He's our Father. He's not our judge. He will not condemn us. He's our Father who loves us. And as His children, we have the privilege of praying to Him through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And then notice again how in both verse 1 and 2, God our Father or God the Father is linked also with the Lord Jesus Christ. These are two divine persons within the Godhead. They are equal in sharing all the glory, all the attributes, all the magnificence of the Godhead. And it's a great combination of two members of the Godhead to show they're both equally God. 
So they, this is a church in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may grace and peace come from you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both God. And so both grace and peace come from both because they both are persons within the Godhead. So it's kind of an interesting acknowledgement of the, of the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in verse 2, as is Paul's custom, he opens letters and he closes letters with references of grace and peace. And here he mentions it again. Grace is the root of all of our blessings. Grace is undeserved. We can't merit it. It's a free gift. And we need that grace continually. So he opens up 2 Thessalonians with the word grace to you. If Paul were alive and if he were to visit our church, I think the first thing he would say to you is grace to you. You need grace. May God give you grace. Because we live in a very hostile environment. And we need the grace of God to sustain us. It's kind of like an astronaut out in space. And what do they wear? They, they wear these space suits, which are amazing things. It protects them from these little micro-meteors that could come in and, and puncture through their, their bodies. It gives them a supply of air without which they would die. It maintains the pressure within their suit. It protects them from the cold or the extreme cold or the, the extreme heat. In other words, it's a life support system. And if they were ever to move out of that, they would die quickly. And the grace of God supplies from heaven all of those things we need to sustain our spiritual life and growth and vitality and movement and ability to serve God. It all comes from God's grace. And so Paul is always eager to remind them and to pray for them that God would give them grace. That's the root from God of all of our blessings. And of course he adds to it peace. Not only the peace of God, that internal calm and quiet that we have, knowing that God is in control, but also peace within the church. Let that peace be with you. And also peace in the midst of a hostile world. And that's why we're to pray for this. As Paul instructs Timothy to pray for our civil leaders that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We want the church to have peace so that we can preach the gospel and worship without fear of being incarcerated or arrested or thrown in prison as our brethren in other countries sadly are, are uh, experiencing. Some of the issues to be dealt with uh, within this letter is uh, again, a big one is... is uh, eschatology. If you look at chapter 2 real quick of 2 Thessalonians, look at verse 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a messenger or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So there were some within the church that were now saying the day of the Lord has come. Now, how could they say that? Some of them may have erroneously thought that the 
tribulation that they were going through is actually part of the day of the Lord, which it is not. The day of the Lord is identified with the second coming. It doesn't include the tribulation before His coming. But some of them, for whatever reason, were claiming this is what Paul really meant. This is what he taught. Look, we have a letter from Paul. And so he references that they are either claiming direct revelation from a spirit in verse 2, or a messenger from Paul, or a letter as if from us, claiming it came from Paul, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And so Paul is writing all of chapter 2, basically, a good part of it, to clarify that is not what I wrote, that is not what I teach. So don't trust those counterfeit letters, those forgers that are sending out things in my name. Let, let, me, let me tell you how you can know this letter comes from me. And then turn to chapter 3, verse 17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And this starts the habit with the Apostle Paul probably of, of always write, signing off the end of his letters, writing the final greeting with his own hand so that people could say, that's the writing of Paul. This is not a forgery. This is not a counterfeit. So Paul actually begins to use this custom because of those who are trying to say he taught what he did not actually teach. So much of 2 Thessalonians is a supplement to 1 Thessalonians, especially in the area of eschatology, to clarify some issues that people were still struggling with. So real quick, an outline for the book of 2 Thessalonians is in uh, chapter 1, we have thankfulness for their persevering faith because God's going to be glorified through it later. And what He's going to tell them is, look, we, we thank God that you're persevering in the faith and continue to persevere because God's going to be glorified even in your persecution. And the way it's going to happen is that when Christ comes back, He's going to judge your persecutors and then you'll find relief and glory in the presence of God. So that's the first thing that he emphasizes. The second part of the outline is that God's people will believe the truth and not be deceived by false teachers. And this is where he's correcting this false idea that the day of the Lord has already come. So the church will not fall prey to that thinking. They will believe the truth and they will persevere in it. And then the third thing in chapter 2 Again, as he's thanking God for electing grace. Paul just kind of had a love for that doctrine, I think. Notice in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He's still rejoicing that God chose to save them and built a church from them. And he's giving God the glory. He's celebrating God's electing grace that has created this church. And he doesn't want them to forget it either. Uh, the doctrine of election really should have many practical effects upon us spiritually. But one that I want to just read is from Robert Murray McShane. And this is what he said in a little poem that he wrote. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee. 
hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit, sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. That's a debt, by the way, we can never fulfill. But while Robert Murray McShane is saying, God, you have chosen me, not because I'm good, but because of your grace. So Lord, because of the gift of salvation, Lord, help me, teach me that I might love you all the more for all the grace that you've given me. If the doctrine of election doesn't have that kind of an influence on your heart, you're not understanding it. The doctrine of election should, should motivate us to live for God and to love God because I don't deserve the grace He's given me. And Paul wanted them to be mindful of that as well. Never stop thanking God for saving you because you did not save yourself. It's a gift of God. So anyway, more on that as we get into that chapter later. The fourth outline is a uh, fourth part of the outline is prayer for the advance of the gospel and the sanctification of the church. The fifth part of the outline in chapter three is stay away from unruly members, but follow our example. And then he closes the book with final greetings and blessings. So to wrap it up, the purpose of Second Thessalonians is to strengthen the saints in the face of ongoing persecution. If there's ever a vital ministry of the Word of God, that is certainly one for the church today. To strengthen us to live boldly for Christ in the midst of ongoing suffering, affliction, and persecution. We all need that encouragement. And Paul is going to add some more encouragement to that. He's going to strengthen the saints. And by God's grace, He'll strengthen us as well. The second purpose is to correct the false teaching. To encourage the elect brethren to stand firm in the Lord and then finally to admonish the undisciplined people in the church so that's kind of an overview of the book of second Thessalonians one of the themes again to persevere in times of trouble with a thankful heart trusting in God's grace is something that's always needed for the church and I think we may not understand our trials you may not understand your sufferings the problems, the afflictions that you're facing now. But if you know, if you're confident that you're one of God's elect, that He has given you promises from the Word of God, then there's a great sense in which that can help sustain us in times of life's challenges and hardships, frustrations and difficulties. Because God is faithful to us. And He's given us His Word and these incredible promises and truths to encourage our faith to stand when the world wants to knock you down. And that's why the Word of God and I trust Second Thessalonians as we work through it will be an encouragement to our faith as we again see the greatness of God and are drawn closer to Him and by His grace are enabled to stand firm and to live for Him regardless of what kind of a world we live in. So may God be honored and glorified as we work through together Second Thessalonians. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for the incredible blessing of Scripture. And Lord, as a, as a church that desires to live sola scriptura, 
that the scriptures alone are our authority for how we are to believe and worship you as well as live on a daily basis. Lord, we thank you for this incredible gift of your word. So Father, we we thank you for the things that we've been taught by the Apostle Paul in his first letter. And now we pray, Lord, that you will teach us through his second letter to this church. And may the word of God sanctify us and strengthen us to stand strong in the day of trial. And we look to you for that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.